You're listening to the Something to Consider podcast, and I'm Matt Mandel. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Harry Lewis, Professor of Computer Science and former Dean of Harvard College. Our conversation focuses on the history of computer science, a topic Professor Lewis knows a good deal about as someone who's been in the field since before computer science was a college major. Keep listening to hear about how Lewis's student, Bill Gates, demonstrated his startup aptitude through proficiency in pancake sorting, why computer scientists should all read the classics, what's wrong with American telecommunications, and how recent college graduates should think about their careers. Uh, Professor Lewis, thank you very much for joining me today. Nice to be here. So you are a professor of computer science, but when you started out on your academic journey, uh, computer science wasn't really a field. Uh, what, what attracted you to this kind of niche aspect of applied math? Uh, because I wasn't good enough at pure math. Um, <laughs> I, I, I came to Harvard College in 1964, um, not, you know, really knowing what I wanted to do. I was uh, happy to get out of my, uh, get out of my house and away from my, uh, my, uh, my school. I actually jumped out of my junior year. And, and uh, but I, you know, I probably had some vague romantic notion that I was going to be a pure mathematician. And, and I, uh, you know, when I got to Harvard, I, um, I learned that, um, you know, being the, the best uh, mathematician in your high school class of 24 is not the same thing as being uh, uh, any good at all at, uh, at, as a pure mathematician <laughs> in, the, in the Harvard context. So I had a fairly uh, rude awakening in uh, Math 55, the, the spring, of my, uh, spring of my freshman year, which was... Um, you know, I, I didn't fail or anything like that, but just um, looking around me, I, I realized I, I wasn't, um, my mind did not work as uh, in the same way as the other people around me that I, uh, you know, that just, just, just awed me. And, you know, rather than doing the thing that, you know, they say you're supposed to do, which is to, you know, fight for what you want, I just decided I would find something else that I wanted more. and and. So I actually I, I switched into physics for a while because I'd taken physics as a freshman and I and I loved the the um, I loved the, the the mathematical aspects of physics. Um, I was totally um, uh, totally in love with Maxwell's equations, which I had never seen before, and thought this was so wonderful that you know people people walk around wearing them on their T-shirts now, and I understand why that is. Um, <laughs> But then it turned out that 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 um, there were labs in physics, and you had to measure things. And I, I, you know, I I I hated doing the error analysis, and you know, didn't know how to do it properly, and um, got grumpy about the fact that I seemed to, uh, you know, be able to do all the math right and still, um, uh, you know, be be held up on on. Um, on uh, on error analysis and other such important details. So um, sometime around you know the end of my sophomore year, I I uh, I more or less uh, fibbed my way into a computer programming job. I'd had a, a high school programming course, you know, an MIT kind of you know two nights a week summer course for high school students that I that I'd taken. So I knew a little bit about Fortran programming, but I never touched an actual computer before. Those were in the days when everything was done with card decks and, 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 and uh, quite um, distant. And um, 
So I, I, uh, I, I got a job programming on the PDP-4 computer that was in the computer-based laboratory in the psychology department up on the 12th floor of William James Hall. And, um, and I just thought that was infinitely cool and fun. And I, lo I loved seeing what everybody else was doing. And, you know, it was also a friendly, you know, nice environment. I got to know a number of the professors there. And, uh, you know, and it was clear that, um, you know, you could do amazing things and that, that, that nobody else knew how to do. So that's kind of how I got into it. And then I, I got steered from there you know that that I got I worked on that job without ever having had a, a computer science course um, at Harvard, and I got steered there into a computer graphics course, uh, which I took my uh, junior year, I guess, and that's that was really the you know the the life changing event uh, that was taught by uh, Ivan Sutherland, who was uh, the founding figure of computer graphics, and he spent just about three years at Harvard before going off first to start a company and then to, uh, uh, to the West coast. And, um, and, uh, there were a number of, um, amazing pieces of research being done during that year of, uh, 67, 68. Um, and, uh, I, I got, did some, Re, you know, I did research over the summer, and then I wrote my senior thesis senior year, and so on. And that's that's really how I became a computer scientist. Was that like a seen as a quirkier choice back then? Obviously, today there's like hundreds of kids who study computer science, and you know, you know, if you study CS, you can go work for Google and make a ton of money. Yeah, it wasn't clear what you could do with a with a with knowing how to uh, you know knowing how to program computers. I mean, in some ways, it was nice because we all saw it as much more an intellectual challenge. Uh, than than a a um, you know than an opportunity to go make um, go make lots of money. So uh, the uh, uh, you know so and and the and the 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 intellectual framework of the field was really um, you know hadn't been it was just being built, and so you know you had this experience of. Um, you know, it's this incredibly exhilarating experience that, you know, anytime anybody did anything, you know, it, it was quite likely to be the first time anybody had done that. And um, so, you know, in my case, my senior thesis involved um, having the computer recognize uh, two-dimensional uh, mathematical input, you know, the, the, you know, so you write equations in the way you usually write equations, you know, x squared plus y over z using a, you know, division bar, uh, horizontal division bar and vertical spacing for the, for the exponents and that sort of stuff. And it was, um, you know, one of the reasons that had never been done before is because nobody had a, you know, a, 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 a any kind of uh, tablet device to, 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 to write on that <laughs> matched a computer. So just the existence of that, that, that physical artifact was uh, was completely new, and so you know it was not like um, once you once you had the, the tools to work with it, the, the the job was that hard. So anyway, so I certainly had I certainly had friends who were like me, um, uh, you know, you know, did uh, computer science there, and what I what we would today call computer science there is to say there was no computer science major. Yeah, it was. Major was applied math. Concentration was applied math. 
but I, but, um, and went on, uh, you know, to be, uh, uh, have very important roles in, uh, in the computer industry, but it was not, you know, it was not the coveted thing that it is now. It was, uh, you know, people are much more interested in, uh, in pure math and, and, you know, in physics, you know, these were, those were the, in the scientific side, those were the, you know, the, the, the glorious, the glamorous fields. What do you make of that transition over the last 50 years? The people who are there were there for like intellectually, intrinsically interested reasons versus a much larger, uh, you know, quote, quote unquote, sexier, uh, more pre-professional discipline. Well, you know, I mean, it's a, I think there's a pretty happy mixture. You know, the thing, uh, you know, because there are, there are still plenty of, you know, there's still plenty of uncharted territory to cover. And I'm glad that people are still trying to, uh, you know, work out some basic um, issues in the field, but, but, um, and, you know, I'm, I'm always happy to see people go off to graduate school as I am to see people go off to, you know, to, to, to industry. Um, you know, I, it's not healthy for, uh, you know, I'm glad Harvard hasn't turned into Stanford where, you know, there are more computer science majors than there are humanities majors in all fields of the humanities. I mean, I wow, is that true? Yeah, that's true. That's wild. Um, but, uh, you know, because you, you can't really have a great university with that, that's, that's that, you know, that's so, you know, uh, lopsided in terms of what uh, student interests are. And, and um, but, um, you know, but I do think that, you know, many of the, many of the challenges in the, in the social sciences and political sciences in the, in the, in the pure sciences and so on are all going to be computational for the next, uh, you know, several decades. So I'm, I'm not happy to, I'm not unhappy that there's so much attention on that by, uh, you know, from, from, from students. And also, you know, I mean, look, the other thing, seriously, um, from a, from a, 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 one of the things that I, you know, I always have to push back when people, try to tell me that it's terrible that there are so many people, you know, in, uh, you know, uh, pre-professional or allegedly, you know, allegedly pre-professional or allegedly vocational fields. That's not necessarily the way I think of computer science, but let's call it that. Um, you know, I have to, I, I have to remind people that, you know, if, if, you know, if, if Harvard were really unhappy about that, that they could solve the problem very easily by, uh, going back to their, uh, earlier, uh, socioeconomic demographic, right? If you, if you admit a lot of students who, 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 who have never had any money in their family, um, you know, you're, there, there's, it sort of stands to reason that they're going to study things that they think might lead them to a, uh, you know, to, to a career where they'll, their children will, will grow up uh, more prosperously than they did. So, right. it, so to, to some, to some degree, I, I, you know, I always have to, you know, I, I always have to push back on people who suggest that somehow we're we're not doing our job because we're not persuading all these people that they should be, uh, you know, English and philosophy majors. I mean, I, I, I we want English and philosophy majors, but there there are some natural things that are associated with, uh, you know, with admitting a, a, you know so many more low income uh, students than we used to have here. Right, uh, and you know, Harvard computer science majors have definitely done well for themselves. Uh, one of your students in particular has done particularly well for himself. Uh, so I'm sure, you know, the course of teaching here for 50 years, you've taught a lot of brilliant people. Uh, but one of them was especially brilliant. Uh, you taught Bill Gates. 
And there's some story about him solving some unsolved problem in math uh, that you'd presented like the day before in class. Could you talk a bit about teaching him and what that story was? So I was teaching the course that is now known as uh, Applied Math 107. I think it was I think it was called AM122. I think in that time, combinatorial mathematics, and um, and I uh, just on the first day just to motivate uh, you know what the why the subject was interesting. I you know threw out a problem which I read about to which there was um, uh, no uh, no good solution known. And uh, the problem goes like this: you 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 um, you're a waiter in a restaurant, and you're carrying a stack of pancakes to the table, and the pancakes are all different sizes, and they're on a plate, stacked one on top of the other, neatly, except not in order. They're all in all the, all the different size pancakes are are completely in a random uh, order in the stack, and your job is to is to create a a nice stack where the biggest pancake is on the bottom and the second biggest pancake is on, is, is on top of that one and so on and the smallest pancakes at the top. And you have only one primitive operation as we would say in computer science available to you and that's to grab a wad of pancakes off the top. So you put your thumb on top of the top pancake and then you reach some distance down into the stack, pick up that, um, that, uh, that, uh, that uh, set of pancakes and flip it over, and you keep repeating that with different, picking up different numbers of pancakes until the stack is uh, in, is completely in order. So in the, in the in the literature, this is called sorting by prefix reversal. If you imagine you've got the you've got a, a you know a, a sequence of numbers, and you're trying to get them in order, and you're the only thing you're allowed to do is to is to take a prefix of the sequence and and reverse it. So, um, so there's, so the question is, you know, if you have, if you start off with n pancakes, you know, like n equals 17, you know, you start off with 17 pancakes, what's the, what's the minimum number of flips that will always suffice if you do it just right to get the stack, any stack of n pancakes in order? And you know, there's a there's an obvious what we would call a two n algorithm. That is to say, uh, you know, in with seventeen pancakes, that would be thirty four flips. And the way you do that is you you know you find the biggest pancake, and you put your finger underneath that one, and you flip over that stack. So the biggest pancake is now at the top. And then you grab the whole stack and flip it over so the biggest pancake is now at the bottom. So that's two flips. And now you just completely ignore the fact that there's a pancake at the bottom and you, you know, treat that bottom pancake as though it was the plate and you just do the same thing with the remaining n minus one pancakes. And so if you do that, you know, you just keep doing that. It takes basically two flips per pancake or two n flips in all to get the stack in, in order. So there's a two n algorithm, and if you think about it, the last couple or don't quite take as much. So maybe it's two n minus one or two n minus three or something like that. But basically, basically two n. So I said, you know, that's the best algorithm known, and and uh, and 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 Gates came into my office, you know, a couple of days later, 
and you know had come up with a um, a five thirds n algorithm, right? So instead of two times n, it was 1.66 times n. So you know significantly, you know significant improvement by doing some clever case analysis and and so on and. That actually stood, he and uh, Christos Papadimitriou, who was my colleague on the faculty at the time, uh, wrote that up because Christos had, had, had made a contribution in another direction on the same problem. Uh, they, they, they wrote that up and, and there's a published paper, I think it's called Sorting by Prefix Reversal in uh, a journal called Discrete Mathematics. And uh, that, you know, that, that, that came out of that work. And, you know, so I always like to say is, you know, if, you know, if Bill had only, you know, pursued his uh, intellectual promise rather than his business promise, you know, he could have been a, he could have made something out of himself, you know, <laughs> but it could have been a great math professor somewhere, but that's all right. It's a good story anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is, were you able to tell when he was a student, like him coming to office hours with a new mathematical result aside, did, could you kind of tell that there was something special there? You know, uh, the, the, you know the troll. You you know you 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 said it. You know, I get I see I see lots of really smart students. I have right. seen lots of really smart students. You know, you know many times. Uh, it was, you know, it took a little bit of um, you know audacity uh, to take my problem, which I had said was unsolved, and to immediately go out and try to solve it. <laughs> Right. I mean, you know, not every student would have the courage to do that. They would say, well, you know, I don't have time to waste on something that's almost certainly not going to pay off. But, you know, it was a, you know, it was a, it was a challenge. So it, it, it was certainly an early indicator of his, um, of his, you know, self-confidence and curiosity and, un, you know, unwillingness to take no for an answer and those kinds of things uh, it, as much as it was of his, you know, intellectual prowess. Right. Uh, and so, you know, you've been teaching here for a while, you've taught many classes. Uh, and the last, last year, you started teaching a new class that you're also teaching this year on the history of computer science. Uh, I think that was a new class for you. Uh, what made you want to teach this course in your last couple years of teaching? Well, I've always, um, yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, I, uh, I, several years ago, I got it into my head that um, the field over the years I've been teaching it, of course, it's so much more advanced now and so much more, but it's not only more advanced, it's so splintered now into, into subspecialties. And, you know, you can now, you know, you can now be a computer science undergraduate, uh, or certainly you can be a computer science PhD student and learn nothing about large parts of the field because the individual parts of it have gotten um, so well developed. You know, when I started studying computer science, as I say, I mean, I really, I had like one, I think I had two, what, what we would call computer graphics courses as an undergraduate. And one of them was the graduate level course in computer graphics. And the other was a graduate level theory of computation course there were basically were no undergraduate courses except some introductory programming courses, which I never took. I just kind of learned it on my own and, you know, from the people I was working with in the lab and so on. So, um, so, uh, so I worry that the computer scientists have gotten narrower, not 
that computer science is a narrow subject, but they're not even learning the whole subject. They're just learning, hmm. they're just learning, you know, the part, you know, they want to study AI. So they learn, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the certain particular kinds of math and then they study AI and, you know, and they never learn a, about operating systems and how they work or, you know, or how, uh, you know, how, how graphic displays work or, you know, lots of, lots of other things. And, you know, in, 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 you know, in, you know, years ago, you couldn't really do that because there just wasn't that much to know. You want to study computer science, you more or less, you know, had to know everything in order to get anything to work. So, so I thought it was a, um, I always had this idea, you know, one of the students in the, in the, in the class, uh, told me she thought it was a great finishing school in computer science, which is, you know, which, which I, which I think it is because you get to see, uh, you know, the, 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 the format, as you know, is that we, you know, we read a lot of the classic papers and the classic papers are in all different areas. And so students get exposed to lots of different areas, including things that they have not, um, they've not seen. And the, but the other thing that, 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 that has gotten lost is that, uh, you know, as the field has matured, is that it's gotten textbookized, hmm. right? So, so all of the you know rough edges have been you know sanded down on the uh, on uh, on on you know how to present and explain things, and so uh, you know I worry that it's in some ways gotten as boring as calculus. Now you know calculus is I think calculus is beautiful if you if it's if it's taught right. But everybody hates their calculus course, as far as I'm concerned, because you know it's all it's all cut and dry. There's nothing, you know, it's like presented to you like it was, you know, chiseled onto the tablets and handled handed down by Moses, you know, and and, and this is told this is this is what you have you must you must you must know calculus because it's good for your soul and and, and it's you know it's it's what the higher authorities expect you to know. And so the result is that, you know, that, that students don't appreciate the, you know, the freshness and novelty and, you know, uh, contingency of the way uh, the field uh, has evolved in the, fa in the past and the way, it, it, you know, I expect it will continue to evolve in the future. And, you know, it's not like we haven't seen, um, you know, revolutions in the computer world just in the past, you know, decade or two I mean you know 20 years ago who thought social networking was going to was an important field you know nobody um, and and you know uh, so 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 it's it, it's good to have students um, you know have the experience of seeing the field come into being and you know the third thing I guess I would say that motivated me was um, you know I did you know about about Oh, you know, probably what's this is 2018. Yeah, a little more than 10 years ago, I I stopped lecturing. I, I have I have, uh, I, you know, I, I'm a good lecturer. I have lots of beautiful lecture notes on lots of things that I've taught in the past. Um, you know, I taught. You know, I actually personally uh, am responsible for creating. You know, CS50, CS121, CS124, CS20 you know, a couple of courses that have not survived. Um, but th th those courses are all ones that, you know, didn't exist until I started teaching them. And I've got, you know, lecture notes for all of them and they're, you know, and they're great. But, you know, lecturing is not where it's at anymore. And, uh, 
so I decided on this one that what I really wanted was to, I wanted to teach a discussion course, but I wanted to teach a discussion course, not as a seminar of 12, but I wanted to teach a seminar course in a scalable format so that anybody who wanted to take it could take it. And so, you know, I've tried to develop these various pedagogical tricks so that we can have an unlimited enrollment course. You know, CS191 has 145 students or so in it. And, uh, you know, and yet actually have it, uh, have it a discussion, which obviously means that I can't be leading every discussion. It's got to be some, some other mechanism for doing it. So just as a, you know, I just like the idea of a classroom full of people who are talking to each other. And, um, and that's, uh, you know, I think that's, I think that's been good for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think it's a interesting model having the large class, but still discussion based. Um, and, you know, based on that other people should try more in other disciplines and for other classes. Also, I will say, like, you know, reading the papers, uh, I, I feel like the, the class almost speaks for itself in that, you know, you're telling like Shannon's paper, where just because he happened to have done electrical engineering stuff and happened to have background in logic and math, that he recognized the connection between, like, uh, electrical circuits and Boolean logic, and then was able to make this innovation. Right. right. I mean, that's, I mean, it, that, you know, you look at that, and it's just such second nature to us now. Well, of course, you know, of course you describe electric circuits with, you know, with, with Boolean logic. But, you know, even though Boole had been writing a uh, hundred years before Shannon, and there were lots of people who had lots of electric circuits, you know, in all of the years in between, you know, all of a sudden, you know, Shannon puts two and two together and, you know, and, and creates the, the, you know, the thing that, uh, you know, we, we, we just take for granted now because everybody does it. So it really is kind of amazing. Yeah. Uh, and so now I actually want to talk a little bit about uh, the actual like, history of computer science. Uh, so the seeds of computer science go back to the 19th century, but the field really begins with Turing's paper in 1936, uh, which is in a way responding to what David Hilbert was up to and kind of like the state of math at that time. Uh, can you kind of like set the scene for the birth of computer science with what was happening in mathematics at the start of the 20th century? Yeah, there's, it's it's hard to you know there there's various ways to date it, but uh, you're right. I I I tend to think that and I think you know most people agree that that Turing's 1936 you know uncomputable numbers is an application of the Entscheidungs problem uh, is the first real computer science paper, and you know and as you say in that paper uh, Turing resolves the question which. Um, which uh, Hilbert or Hilbert and Ackerman, to be precise, had had posed as to whether there could be some kind of what we would today call an algorithmic procedure uh, to settle um, all mathematical questions. That is to say, you know, could you have some kind of procedure, device, mechanism? So you would feed in a statement in a sufficiently formalized mathematical language and the output would be yes or no, depending on whether that was a provable proposition using some set of conventional axioms for, for mathematics. So that that's the Entscheidings problem. And, and um, you know, half of the battle for, for, for Turing 
was to define what a computing procedure was. I mean, that, Hilbert doesn't call it a computing procedure. They, you know, he talks about, you know, you know, finite processes and, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, discrete steps and so on. But, you know, there was no formalization of what, it, of, of, of the notion of a general purpose computer until Turing developed one, which he then had to argue really was powerful enough to encompass anything that could plausibly be called a computational procedure and then also had to be simple enough so that it was possible to reason about it mathematically and prove that there were certain um, statements and he demonstrated some of them that um, that uh, you know could not be uh, proved by any such um, any such device so um, uh, so that you know the the, the 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 it didn't come out of nowhere it, it came out of uh, the studies of the formalization of mathematics that had been going on since the you know middle of the 19th century, um, and but it all kind of came to a head in the 1930s, and and with the right alongside the work of uh, of Gödel and uh, and Church as well as of Turing, but because Turing is the one who who you know who really formalized the notion of a um, uh, of a uh, uh, of a computer, he's the one. He's the one who uh, I think really deserves the credit for being the first, the first, at least the first modern computer scientist. I mean, I'd say there, there, there's you know, I, I, I sort of think Leibniz deserves credit for being that. That was something that was in another time, and there was really not much continuity with what started to happen in the 20th century. Something that I think is really interesting is that. Turing kind of like gets it right on the first try where yes. he yes. tries to, he tries to answer the question of like, okay, what is, you know, what, what do we mean when we, when we talk about our intuition of a computable procedure? Right. And we kind of agree that what he constructed is exactly equivalent to what we mean by a procedure. How, but how does one like argue about whether something fits our intuitions? That's not like a mathematical proposition. That's just. Right. So that's, the, you, know, that's you know, that's called, you know, that's known in the business as the as Turing's thesis or the Church Turing thesis, because Church made a similar argument about a much more uh, opaque, uh, you know, formal system. Um, but which is, again, you know, extensionally equivalent to what the Turing machines can do. But so the the um, so there so so that's an interesting question. So so I personally think that that's you know. That all you can do is uh, all you can do is uh, you know give examples and challenge people to give you counterexamples and if they can't come up with counterexamples, you know things that um, can't be done using your system but intuitively are computationally reasonable, you know then you you gradually become persuaded this is an ad this is an adequate definition so that's that's really what happened over the years. Um, I, I have a I have a colleague named Yuri Gurevich who who has some larger uh, 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 set of things that could be effective computational procedures and uh, and you know argues that he has actually proved the Church Turing thesis but you know hmm. I think that's 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 somewhat disputed and to some degree 
a matter of, of uh, semantics. Another thing that I think is interesting is uh, this is kind of a more historical or philosophical question of what, why do we see the advances in these kind of like uh, brilliant moves and innovations at all at this point in time? And so there's something kind of crazy about you have this unsolved problem or, you know, an intuition that we haven't made precise all the way up until 1936. And very suddenly in 1936, you have Turing and Church and, you know, maybe Post had also kind of worked on this, who all kind of come to the same conclusion. Do you have any thoughts yeah. on how or yeah. why this happens yeah. and happens at this time? But, you know, it's interesting you mentioned Post. I mean, Post, Post kind of... Post had all of the right ideas, but he he didn't put them together. And, uh, you know, partly because he was, you know, he was not at, at you know, at Princeton and Cambridge. He was, uh, he was, uh, he, he was more intellectually isolated than, uh, than, uh, than, than Church and Turing were. And a lot of what he was working on, you know, you, you found in his, his diaries after he, uh, you know, you know, after after he, he left, so um, so you know um, that's you know I, there there's a certain um, there's a certain ripeness, I guess. Um, you know, if you if you uh, these mathematical problems, if they get if they get uh, people make incremental progress for a while, and then there's a you know, there's a there's a there's a kind of a breakthrough. Um, I don't know really what else to say about it because I don't think at that point, uh, at the time when Turing was twenty four years old in nineteen thirty six, um, I don't think he'd seen a computer before. It's not like he had a real uh, you know any experience with computer programming or anything like that. He was definitely working in the in the in the realm of pure mathematics and meta mathematics. Not in, he went on to do very important work with real computers um, for cryptanalysis in particular. But uh, but that was later. Um, so I don't know. That's I'm I you know I'm I, I would say there's a there's a you know the the, the moment the moment was ripe. This is about all I can say. Mm -hmm. But it's also it's also not as though um, everybody immediately say, oh, oh, now I see we're at the beginning of a complete revolution and everything we thought we thought, you know, Turing, I, as I recall, you know, six months after the paper had been published, you know, complained to his mother that only six people had asked for uh, reprints of it. You know, oh, wow. <laughs> I think I've got that story. There's some such story like like like, like that. So. It, you know, it did not. It did not set the world on fire uh, in, in, in terms of uh, uh, you know that suddenly people realized there was such a thing as a universal computer, and we should all go start building them. That, that was nothing like that happened. What What happened with that move? Or do Do you have a good sense of the history of uh, Turing? You know, creates this model to solve this kind of abstract and esoteric math problem, right? And then a couple of decades later, people are using computers for all sorts of things. And are starting to appreciate the ways that you know, like the business applications and scientific applications and everything else that they could have. Yeah, it was only a, it was really only a decade, and uh, you know, and and that had a lot to do with the Second World War. I mean, the the the, the uh, you know, there was enormous amounts of interest in um, 
computational, or I should, probably should say calculational problems during the Second World War because the, the you know, if you're going to design an atomic bomb, which people wanted to design, uh, certainly in the U.S. And, and, and probably elsewhere in the world at the, at the time, but um, it was not a um, it was not an experimental science. You really had to model uh, what you thought was going to happen and run various simulations, basically, under various conditions. And so there were, you know, the, the, the computations that were done at Los Alamos and or in the Manhattan Project, I should say, were, uh, were, uh, were uh, extremely tedious to do, but they were all done, you know, by hand by people, mostly women, working with mechanical, electromechanical calculators, desk calculators, Marshak calculators, as they would call it. So, so the importance of computing for... Um, defense purposes, you know, became very evident in the late 1930s and early 1940s. And, and uh, you know, and, uh, you know, von Neumann, who certainly understood uh, the significance of Turing's work, um, you know, was, uh, and, and also, you know, was involved in the Manhattan Project. Um, he was, you know, it, it, that's what got him starting to design his own um, electronic computer, um, which was a general purpose computer. And, and uh, uh, you know, the, 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 so, so, so some of what made the field take off during that particular period, you know, from the late 30s to the late 40s, uh, you know, had to do with the, the uh, accidental circumstances of the huge investments that the uh, United States government was making in, uh, in, in calculating things. When you think about how innovations in technology happen, I think there are kind of like three main players. There's the government, there's academia, and then there's like the private sector. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it feels like in the beginning of the field, uh, academia and the government were definitely like the largest drivers of innovation. And I don't think it's especially controversial to say that uh, like venture capital and, you know, industry have kind of taken over that role. Do you think that's been a good development or like a natural development or what do you make of that shift in how computer science research is done? Well, it's, it's, you know, I, I worry, I worry about the, the image that the private sector has taken over the responsibility for blue sky, innovative, long-term payoff research that the government used to used to fund that is a that's a kind of that's a kind of popular um uh myth that is very congenial both to people who are uh trying to reduce the size of the federal budget and to those who are uh you know hoping for uh more investment on the private sector side where they have an opportunity to clean up and you know the 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 um, uh, you know the fact of the matter is that um, there's a lot of uh, research and development and a lot of frankly you know infrastructure development that's uh, extremely important that the private sector will not do without um, you know without a push from the government to do it and um, 
you know, I've been just, I've just been writing about, um, uh, you've really been thinking about this a lot lately because of the, you know, the, my, my rage about the, uh, poor quality of the internet in the U S the, 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 you know, data rates, which the leading, you know, internet service providers tell us are so-called, you know, they, that we all have this really fast internet, you know, almost nowhere else in the world would any, would what Americans have be considered fast internet. Hmm. Um, you know, you have to have fiber optic cable everywhere, including, you know, right into the home to have, to have fast internet. And there's all kinds of economic and scientific and medical opportunities that are unavailable to us because, you know, people are relying on, you know, DSL or, 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 or cable service to get the bits in and out of their homes and offices. So it drives me crazy. You know, I have some medical procedure. I go to my, I go to my ophthalmologist and their retinal skin. And I just, just sit there and wait for these images to load. And it's, you know, just because all of the infrastructure is, uh, you know, is slow. And in, in Southeast Asia and Scandinavia and in places where the, the, uh, the government has subsidized or simply taken control over the diffusion of, um, you know, fiber everywhere, um, you know, their internet speeds are much, are much, much faster. And, you know, it's the kind of thing where, um, when rural America was electrified in the 1930s, you know, that was done as part of the, the rural, uh, rural electrification act that signed by, you know, Roosevelt in the suite of his, of his, you know, new deal, various, various other pieces of legislation. But, you know, if, if it had been left to the private sector, you know, the farms in Iowa still wouldn't have electricity going to them because it's just, you know, it mm. doesn't pay to pull electric cables into the middle of Wyoming or somewhere. It's just right. like, there are not enough, there are not enough customers and they, they couldn't possibly pay enough to justify bringing, bringing the electric grid everywhere. And, you know, so that, that was a place where the government could, could step in. And, uh, you know, I, I, that's just, that's just one area. There's a, I think there's a role for, for the government in, in doing that. And the, and the, 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 uh, you know, the same thing goes, that's not, that's, that's, you know, that's development and, and, and infrastructure development. That's not, that's not research, but you know, most companies don't pay for long-term research, you know, Microsoft and Google do, but that's, you know, that's pretty much it. And, and, and they've undergone contractions there, there as well. They, they, but you have to be an incredibly profitable business to really, you know, fund, uh, you know, really long-term computer science research. I really, it has to be done in, uh, you know, in universities or, or perhaps in national laboratories and elsewhere in the world it happens in national laboratories. But, you know, our tradition since the second world war is to do, is to do, you know, blue sky research, have it begin in, at least in, uh, in, in academia. So I worry about the, the, you know, the idea that, you know, Google and Facebook are going to take care of that for for the for for uh, uh, you know now that they're that they're so profitable because they because they won't and they in fact may have um, 
interests that are counter to uh, the kinds of research that will disrupt their um, their their uh, their their primary business. You know, they 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 may not want. You know, I mean, you know, a, 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 you know, a great example is uh, again just going back to pick on the telecom industries, which are among my you know my always my favorite targets. But you know, almost everywhere. Um, upload and download speeds are different. You know, you buy a certain package and you get, you know, download speeds of, uh, you know, download speeds of, 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 of X and upload speeds of one-tenth X, right? Sure. There's no reason for that. The wires and whatever it is, fiber, wire, you know, the, 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 the wires will carry the same traffic level in both directions. And the reason is that they've, you know, they've, de they've designed the electronics that they put on the ends of the wires to be optimized for people who want to watch movies, not for people who want to sit in their ophthalmologist's office and have their retinal scans uploaded to an expert, right? right? And so, so that's a, that, that's a, you know, that, that's just an example where um, the, the industry will uh, develop a, uh, a theory of how you should be using the technology that's based on you know, maximizing their profits and then design the technology in service of that. And whereas, you know, uh, the wonderful thing about you know, this whole field is that you, know, you never know what it's gonna be useful for you. You wanna design it to be as general and as flexible as you possibly can be so that you know, creative people will come along and do you know, um, stuff that nobody ever thought of. Shifting gears a little bit now, just before we wrap up. Uh, so in addition to your work as a computer scientist, uh, you know, doing research and teaching, you were also Dean of Harvard College for a bit and you've written a lot actually about uh, college and students and uh, you know, more like humanities driven topics. Uh, and I came across your uh, advice to freshmen entering college, which I really enjoyed reading. Uh -huh. uh, I, I kind of wish I'd seen it three and a half years ago, but that's all right. <laughs> you wouldn't have paid any attention to it. That, that's exactly right. <laughs> but uh, so I was wondering if uh, you had uh, complimentary advice to seniors who are about to graduate college. So I guess, I guess, you know, the, uh, the, the, the advice for people grieving is so so you know the most important advice and it's this, this part of it's common to the advice that I that try to give students as an undergraduate which is you know try to value your freedom and use uh, use your freedom to maximum advantage right so so the the people are very you know people are very uh, afraid of failure but failure gets defined by harvard students in way that's ways that nobody else in the world would consider failure right you know if their roommate has an offer for 110,000 and their offer is only for 90,000 they consider themselves a failure right <laughs> like like in what universe does this make sense right yeah so so um so i uh you know i would i would encourage people graduating from harvard today to you know, to, to 
to take risks, to follow instincts, not to try to, you know, calculate where they want to be five years from now and uh, go straight at it, unless, you know, unless that brings them joy to do it. I mean, if, you know, if you're dedicated to, you know, if you, if you want to be a neurosurgeon, there's a, there, there's a series of steps you have to go through. And, and as long as you're, you know, you, you continue to get charged by, by doing them, you know, God bless you. But for, you know, for people in, you know, in, in, in computer science, um, where there's so much evidence that, the you know, that, uh, uh, the people who, who, you know, recognize an open door when they see one are the, you know, are the people who really are really succeed, not the people who, you know, who have carefully, imagined what what a door will look like and spent five years building the door that they can then walk through you know it's just stuff is so contingent and so happens so it's so and and you know harvard students graduating from harvard have this incredible privilege that they are they don't owe anybody any money or they don't owe anybody very much money they got you know so and and it's even okay if they have a little money, you know, to, to risk losing it because you know the time to risk losing everything is when you don't have anything, right? So, if you if you wait ten years before you think you're going to have your adventure, you know, life will find its way by that time to have, uh, you know, have uh, you know to, to 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 slow you down and make you more immobile. You'll you'll have personal connections. You know, you'll lived in one place for a while. You're not going to. You're not going to, you know, be quite as adventurous as you as you were as you were now. So, you know, I, I you know, you should you should try to do things. You should try to do things that that uh, you know that bring you joy. I sound like the de, like the decluttering lady, which is not yeah, what I was about to say. Trying to echo, but it's it, does this career spark joy? But you know, it, 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 it's you know, your risks are really very limited at the you know at at the age of you know, 22 or whatever you are, they really are, you know, if, they, if, if, you know, if you completely screw up for two years, you know, it means, you know, that you will, even if you do absolutely nothing and you just get back on the train that you had intended to get on right out of college, but you do it two years later, it means you'll be 60 when you get to a certain point rather than 58. So, you know, who the hell cares, right? No one's going to know the difference. And that, of course, it's most unlikely to actually turn out that way. They're, 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 you know, you, 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 you learn stuff by taking chances that will enrich you uh, in ways you hadn't anticipated. So, you know, just, you know, try to have some confidence and, uh, and uh, you know, enjoy the ride. Mm-hmm.